Good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. It is November. Can you believe that? November. Are you guys playing Christmas music yet? No, you're being good Christians, huh? That's good. We were playing Christmas music in summer. Have you heard of that summer? Christmas in the summer? Anyway, uh, I want to welcome you to our service. If you are watching online, we miss you if you're not here. And if you're just an online watcher, well, welcome also. Uh, if you happen to grab a bulletin, you'll notice on the front page we have a Thanksgiving lunch coming up. Uh, November 13th, following our worship service. Similar to our monthly luncheons, except we have a Thanksgiving theme. And we'll also have uh, turkey and mashed potatoes and good stuff. So we encourage you to make it. Um, Well, for more information on ongoing events, you could reference your bulletin. I don't want to sound redundant. Um, if you would like to contribute to the ministry of El Paso Bible Church, you can do so by making an online donation at the church website, elpasobiblechurch.org, or on our app. If you didn't know, we do have an app. You can look for it on your uh, app store uh, by using the box located in the sanctuary by mailing in your donation. And I totally read that from the bulletin. But there it is. I am reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, dear God, we are thankful this morning for your love and your grace. And just for this opportunity uh, to come together as, as a body, as your body, as the church. And worship you. So Lord, we want to make you famous. We want to bring glory to your name by, by the songs that we sing. And by the things we say. Bring glory to you. We ask that you encourage us through the teaching of your word. It should be with Pastor Josh as he, as he shares that. It's in your son's name. And then we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us for a time of worship?
Good morning. Children, you guys can go to Children's Church. And uh, if, you don't, if you're here and you don't know where you're supposed to go for Children's Church, uh, we'll sort you out. Just follow some of the other kids. It'll be all right. Pretty soon we are, I mean... The more detail-oriented among us can walk through the new building and see things that aren't quite done. But I'm past that point. I'm not that detail-oriented. I'm, I'm ready to use it. They put in the Iwana Circle on Friday and Saturday here. Um, so, I mean, it's looking even colorful and nice. And I had about 15 people working yesterday all day. Um, so, I mean, we're getting there, getting there quickly. So we'll have different procedures uh, in place when that happens. Uh, we had a great triple B last night. I don't know if Jacob mentioned that. Um, you know, we just have a bunch of guys with a big fire. <laughs> big fire. Beef and beer uh, or tea or soda or whatever you want to bring to drink. Mineral water. I drink Perrier sometimes during the week, but don't tell anybody. Um, or Topo Chico if I can get my hands on a bottle that's not this big of it. Whatever you want to bring, but we had a good time of fellowship and uh, around the word as well. Uh, but it's a pleasant, uh, joyful time that we spend together when we can. I don't, it's not even on a particular schedule. Uh, we just do it when we feel like and everybody comes. So it works out all right. And we'll do another one soon. Uh, but guys, thanks. It's real important that we do that and spend that time together. Uh, because it's fellowship, right? That's what we're talking about out of First John is, is fellowship. And of course, uh, fellowship with other human beings uh, I mean, it, it demands physical presence with each other. So if we don't have opportunities to be physically present with each other, then we're not going to have it. That's kind of foundational. That's definitional. Uh, what some of you might call normative, right? You know, normal is what you do. Normative is the definition, kind of the foundation. And that's normative for fellowship, to be in physical proximity to other people. And uh, the introverts among and I'm one, I'm, uh, as pastors, most pastors are introverts. Uh, people don't realize this. I'm a, I'm a professional extrovert. Does that make sense? 
That's part of my job. Like, I mean, I've just kind of grown to be functionally an extrovert. Uh, it's not my natural thing. Um, but it is not normally, like, for if you're an introverted person, you don't go, wow, I just want to be in physical proximity to a whole sea of people. That sounds so energizing. And so we have to be careful, right, as introverts, to not discount what God has designed for that. And First John tells us this. He says that if you are pursuing fellowship, then the consequence of that is a fullness of joy. And so he didn't say if your personality fits or if you don't have some baggage that you need to get rid of or whatever. He just says it. Our fellowship is with ourselves, God the Father, and you can have fellowship with us, and then everybody's joy will be full. And so there's a place for that, right? And he gives us instructions uh, to maintain that fellowship intimacy. Uh, When we've committed sins against the other, we should confess those. Uh, Just because discipline is not enjoyable, if nothing else, right? Uh, We want to not live our lives in a long term under discipline. Uh, in our lives. We want to understand who we are in Christ because that abiding in Christ, John tells us, is the key to success and fellowship, resting in who we are in Christ, knowing exactly who I am, that I am accepted. I'm accepted in Christ. Even if Christ doesn't approve of all the things that I do, who I am, I am accepted in Him Paul keeps that distinction separate, as does John, as does all the other biblical authors. I am accepted, and yet I run, Paul says, the race, so as not to be disqualified, not to be unapproved. Um, Keeps those things separate. So we want to abide. We want to rest in who we are. We can't do that if we don't have assurance of who we are in Christ, that we have eternal life simply as a gift by grace through faith alone that can never be divested from us. We can never be separated from it. You can't rest if you're constantly seeking to earn in that. But abiding has another feature, and that is that we do what he says to do. We don't embrace the responsibility for success, right? We don't. Do you feel the pressure? Man, we talked about this a little bit last night. You feel the pressure to succeed. And Christ does not place the burden of success on us. He places obedience upon us. In John 15, of which is, first John is really an exposition of the gospel of John chapter 15 in my understanding. And there he just says that abiding in me is the key to fruitfulness. It's the key to production. It's the key to successful production. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who abides in me will produce much fruit. He doesn't say you've got to bust your tail or be smarter than average or be really good at capitalism or whatever. You abide in him. Rest in who we are, do what he says to do, and he bears the fruit through us. One of the, uh, the obstacles to that, and we, we do this, guys, if you haven't been with us very long, we're trying to make sure that we connect the context all the way through from the beginning to the end so that when we finish, we haven't forgotten what we started with. I feel like that's real important. That's the way God revealed himself in these words in a unit together to us. Um, he said one of the, one of the obstacles to abiding in Christ is loving the world and the things of the world. That if we love the things that are passing away, the things of the world's purview, we will fail 
to abide in Christ. We will fail on at least one key component, which is to obey. Instead of laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, we will focus on what the world says our success is. And the things that the world tells us is beautiful and wonderful and kind. Are you kind of tired of the world's definition of what is beautiful and honorable and lovely? You never, you know, years ago we were looking at houses out in in New Mexico. Some of them were old farmhouses. And a lot of them would say, but years ago they would say, this property has a really old cesspit on it. And you're going to have to deal with that if you buy it because they're illegal. You have to put in a real modern septic system or whatever. I feel like the world demands that I look at that old nasty cesspit and say, you know what? That's a beautiful garden. And I'm just not there. Just not going to do it. I think most of y'all are with me based on the chuckles there. I'm just not going to do it because I know what is better. I know that the world is passing away, good, bad, ugly, whatever. It's passing away. The world is going. It's being passed away. And therefore, I look upon you who are, in other places, Scripture calls you Christ's handiwork. And I don't care what your mama thinks, but y'all are beautiful. You're, you're pretty. You're pretty good looking. Because I see in you what Christ has made you and what we shall be when we see Him. That's my objective. And that is the key, right? When the world presents a temptation, we need to be able to objectively understand the nature of beauty in God's vision and God's plan. In order to be able to prioritize fellowship with that which is beautiful beyond with that which is fleeting and ugly to boot. I mean, like, it's actually an advantage that it's fleeting if it's ugly, right? Yeah? The world is passing away. I don't love it. We talked about that. Everyone who has this hope on him or in him or this fixed on him, you could even say. Some of the translations say it that way, and I think that's right. It purifies himself. Specifically. Now, you know, it's not like when one of my sons comes in, y'all, know, y'all are familiar, right, with Crockfoot? Leanne, you know what Crockfoot is? She doesn't know because I haven't, I thought everybody would know exactly what that means. When boys of a certain age spend all their weekend Crocs and they take them off, it looks like they haven't been wearing anything at all and been going through the mud doesn't matter because they make their own mud inside the crocs. And I've had a lot of boys in the daily pain. They got a few boys. And, and when they take their crocs off, you say, go cleanse yourself. That's not exactly the context here, right? Very specifically, he's saying cleanse yourself from the desire, the lust that you are tempted to express towards what is passing away. Purify yourself from that and unto, sanctified unto abiding in Christ and loving the brethren. You're not trying to work away a sin debt, but you are sanctifying yourself as one who possesses life in Christ and identity in Christ from misplaced, misdirected 
love, obedience, and sacrifice. Make sense? That's this context. Purifying. Everyone who has that hope purifies himself. So let's look at this passage. I'll tell you, this is a controversial passage for some people. Um, And some people just grow real comfortable with heresy in it. And we're not going to do either of those. We're not going to be scared of it, neither. I don't scare easy. It says this in verse 4, Everyone who, and my NSV says, practices. Guess which word does not ever show up in 1 John? The word practice. The word is poieo, which is very similar to the Spanish word hacer, right? Do, make, produce. It's very flexible. But what it doesn't mean is practice. It means produce, to do, to make, maybe even create. You could do that. Everyone who produces sin produces lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Is you are not only making a mistake, right? You're not only making a mistake. You're violating a principle of righteousness when you sin. This is everyone who does this actually. Uh, a lot of people tend to focus on First John as being the delineation between a believer and an unbeliever, and we think that's wrong. That's the, called the test of life view, and I think it's aberrant. Not just wrong, but awful. The test of fellowship allows you to understand this for what it says. It's a universal statement. Everyone, not believers or unbelievers, but everyone, sin is sin is sin, right? When you sin, you have produced lawlessness in your life. You have ignored and violated a principle of righteous conduct that God has established. It's not talking about the Mosaic law, but just that, the code of righteousness established by God's character. Everyone who produces that produces lawlessness. And verse 5, you know, you should know this. John's readers knew this. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. We know that. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's a restatement of an earlier principle, but the application here is this. When you sin, you're producing lawlessness. You've committed a violation of righteousness, of a righteous code. And Christ came in order to take away sins. When Jesus' earthly cousin John saw him, right, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To lift up. Again, another flexible word. Sometimes in the Gospels, we have lifting up as a cultivation technique. That's John 15, right? That, uh, that if a, a branch does not produce fruit, he lifts it up into a position where it can be fruitful. In, the, in viticulture, that's, that was a technical term. That's how they operated. But sometimes you take it up, you lift it up, and you take it away to get burned. Christ came to remove the sins, not to cultivate them. That's a pretty easy contextual statement, I think I can say. He came to take them away. That's not shocking, right? Are you shocked? This is your shocked face? I can't tell. These are not shocking principles. Not controversial. We're not to the controversial part yet. I promised you I'm going to deliver. 
No one, verse 6, no one who is abiding in him, that's a temporal participle. They're not a, not a, what we call a finite verb. So it's a person who is defined by this doing, who is abiding, temporal. While, so you can even say no one while abiding in him sins. That makes sense, right? Yes? If you're abiding in Christ, what do we do to abide in Christ? We rest in who we are and what we possess and who Christ is, and we do what He says to do. So how can you sin? Christ has never commanded you to sin, and if you're doing what He says to do, you're not going to sin. That looks like y'all shocked faith. Are you okay? No one, while abiding in Him, sins. Don't be shocked. But you might want to make a little note there. Hopefully you have a, a Bible where you have some margins. And you could just, don't, you don't have to cross anything out. I get nervous about that. But you could put temporal participle or while abiding. No one while abiding in him sins. No one who sins. No one who sins has seen him. Or knows him. Oh, the knickers start twisting right about now. Is this your shocked face yet? Don't be shocked. No one who sins has seen him. Have any of y'all seen Jesus? What happens when you see Jesus? You know this. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. But when he appears and we see him just as he is, what happens? We shall be like him. Duh. That's the duh principle of hermeneutics. If you go around telling me that you've seen Jesus, I'm going to tell you you need your medic mo medication modified, probably. Know what I mean? Jesus is not extant on the planet right now. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to return. And we don't need to spiritualize or allegorize that. The Bible says that when he returns, his feet are going to hit the Mount of Olives, and bam! There's going to be a big valley created right there where his feet touch the ground. His feet are not on the ground, people, because the Mount of Olives is in one piece still. You haven't seen Jesus Otherwise, the Bible isn't true, right? Because you all sin, right? You do sin. I'm your pastor, I know. I sin too. Sometimes I sin because you all sin. It's terrible. I get angry. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. In other words, you... That's that intimacy, right, that you, you, once we see Him, we will spend eternity growing in intimacy with Christ. One of the beautiful things about eternity is that we will learn forever. Those of you who have a problem with habitual acquisition of, of avocations are going to be wonderfully suited to eternity because you're going to have time to learn and investigate and grow forever. Constant curiosity for eternity. So, yeah. Everybody, nobody's, nobody's seen Jesus that's on this planet right now. Who knows him? 
And people who are with Jesus, who have seen him, aren't sinning while they're there, by the way. So this makes perfect sense. This is pretty simple. This is like not even theology 101. It's like if there was a remedial theology, that's what that is, right? If you've seen Jesus and you're with him and you're like Jesus, you're not sinning. No one who is abiding in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So, there's a warning. You guys are going to sin. It says little children. Now, you may call your little children angel babies. That's what my mama called her grandchildren. She never called us that. She wasn't deluded yet. Oh, all the grandchildren, angel babies. They're not angel babies. Well, they may be, they may be fallen angel babies. Except for cute little Juliet over there, right? She's an exception. Yeah, no. Got news for you, Emily. She's a sweetheart. But she's going to sin. She may already be. She just can't tell you about it. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. Little children. One thing we know universally about little children is they're little sinners. They are. We love them because God loved us. We love because He first loved us. He loved us while we were just little sinners. Big sinners. Massive sinners. But He addresses them. He says, you're not done yet. He's just reminding them, you are little children. You have some room to grow here, little children. Make sure that no one deceives you. The one who produces righteousness, that's practice probably in a lot of your translations, poieo, who produces righteousness, is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who produces sin is out of, ek, statement of source, out of the devil. Of the devil, probably is what yours says, that's okay, just need to understand the nature of the words, right? Sin only has one source, it's not Jesus. It's of the devil. It's out of him. And this is why the devil has sinned from the beginning. He's the initiator of sin. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. If someone is producing righteousness, then they are emulating Christ. Now, that's not a statement of some kind of legalism. Because Christ produces perfect righteousness, not charade or facade righteousness, not fake righteousness, not righteousness for accolades or whatever. He produces true righteousness. And nobody can produce that apart from Christ and emulating Him. Nobody produces things that Christ rewards apart from Christ's power to do that. It's an equative verb. This is that. Notice that, right? It's an equal sign. You could put an equal sign in here. The one who produces righteousness is righteous. This is that. Grammatically, right? That's important. If someone produces Christ's righteousness, they are righteous. Now, who are the enemies here? Who are the, the secessionists? I just like to say that word up in the pulpit. Secession. Ah. Who are the people that went out from them? Well, they were people who were denying that Jesus is the Messiah. So were they producing righteousness? No. They were producing evil, wickedness, and error. 
So we need to keep that comparison in mind. That's what John is answering. What happens in a situation where these people have left us? They still are nice people. They, they do apparently nice things and good things. They may still be our friends, but they're not producing righteousness because they've denied Christ. They're antichrists. What about sin? Well, just like righteousness has only one source, sin has one source. One originator, anyway. One. And that is the devil. And so when you're producing sin in your life, it has one source, right? It's out of the devil. This, this is shocking to some people. I don't know why. Sin has one source. He is the originator and the author of it. Despite many people who claim that God is the originator and the author of sin, the Bible does not agree. And to make such a basic error tells me that you should mark and avoid someone and almost everything else that they say, to be quite honest. That's a scriptural principle. The devil is the author and the originator of sin. He has sinned from the beginning. Prior to that beginning, there was none. And Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. It wasn't like a fringe benefit, you know? It was the reason, the purpose, to destroy those things. So someone who sins, they are stacking up things that are going to be destroyed. The things of the world, the things that are passing away, that are being passed away in that passive voice, right? You're stacking up things because Christ doesn't fail. It's not like there's a question as to whether Christ is going to achieve His purpose. He is going to achieve His purpose. Yes? Amen? Praise Jesus, right? All of it's going to be destroyed. Everything from the devil. Verse 9. No one who is begotten of God. Oh, this is where people go full-fledged heresy. All right, we're going to try not to do that. No one who is begotten of God produces sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So what say you, you bunch of sinners? Hmm. No one who is begotten of God sins. Remember the word practice doesn't appear here. No one who produces sin My translation is really not strong enough or particular enough. This is a perfect tense verb. In other words, it should, I mean, it's okay. No one who is born of God, as a statement of principle, that's okay. But really, the idea is, in the perfect, something that was started in the past and completed in the past. No one who has been completely begotten of God with all of its consequences, all its ramifications, all of that sense. 
Now, where are you in that statement? Behold what manner of love we've been shown, right? That we would be called children of God and such we are. But what hasn't been revealed yet? What we shall be. That is something that was begun in the past, but we're not finished yet. Right? Scripture refers to only one person as the only begotten of the Father, right? Who is that? Good. Y'all passed Sunday School 101. Jesus. You got the answer. It's Jesus. Does Jesus sin? No one who has been begotten of God sins, and currently, that's Jesus. And we are anticipating, looking forward to living in an environment, in a context that is free from sin, because when He appears and we see Him as He truly is, we shall be like Him, not temporarily, but for eternity. We shall be like Him Remember that we talked about that. The nature of being begotten of somebody is not just talking about the initial start of a relationship, but also the ability, the fullness of it, where you're able to, uh, as a rabbi and disciple relationship, you're able to take on your own disciples and recreate that image in more disciples. Being begotten of God is such that you reflect accurately the image of God, something that I am not just uncomfortable, I think it's heresy to say that we fully reflect every aspect of God's character right now. We're not in that sense begotten of Him. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. So we do still sin. We do still sin. Because that perfect tense is not true of you and of me. And I have some other reasons. It's okay. I can see some knickers twisting. That's all right. We're not there yet. Shall be like him. The future is not in question. The future is not in question. But John is talking about the comparison between what has been done and completed in the past and what the present ramifications of that are, is for our fellowship today. The present is in question to some degree. What will we choose to do? What, will we, what power will we avail ourselves of? Because we all agreed we can sin, right? You may think you haven't today, but you're probably wrong. But you agree hypothetically, at least, even if you're real self-righteous, you agree that you can sin, right? Me too. I agree. I agree you can sin. I agree, I can sin too. I just got you there. All right. We're not done. But what are we going to do today? Whose domain will we serve? Whose household will we be productive in? This is something that I've always told my sons. You are welcome to live at home, son, for the rest of your days as long as you are respectful and productive. And you serve the needs and, and the desires of this house, you're always welcome here. And that's the, the decision that John is placing. He says, you can choose to do things that are sourced 
of the devil or not? Will you waste your time on things that are going to be destroyed? Are you going to stack up things in the world that is passing away, being passed away, overcome and conquered? Or are you going to, pass, are you going to stack up things that emulate Christ's righteousness, that are His righteousness? Are you going to serve the eternal King and His kingdom? John presents this, I think, as a hypothetical for those that are still on the earth. The one who has been entirely begotten of God in the past, he cannot sin. He is like Christ. He can only be righteous. But nobody still walking around on the earth is there yet. The people we live with, the people that we worship with, that we grill steaks and drink beer with on good Saturday nights, are subject to acting according to different standards. Because that's inability. He said, when you're, when you're completed, when you're fully begotten of God, when you have no, no... You are unable. You are impeccable. That's the term that we use when we're talking about whether Jesus was able to sin or not. And people teach this, that He was impeccable. He was unable to sin. And that's the term that John uses for those who are completed in ability. But you and I know that we have the ability. So we know we're not done. Let's read verse 10. <clears throat> By this, the children belonging to God and the children of the devil or belonging to the devil are obvious. They're manifest. I'd rather say manifest. I like manifest. Obvious. Manifest makes me sound smart. He said, you can, you can tell the difference between whose household is getting served in someone's life. It's manifest. Anyone who does not practice righteousness or produce righteousness, excuse me, that's better, is not being sourced out of or out of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That's the dividing line that John presents. He's not asking who you vote for, right? I think there's some wise and unwise ways you can vote. I think there are some sinful and unsinful ways that you can vote, but John doesn't care about that. He's talking about how you love your brother. Now, we've talked about this before. We've said it before. It's a distinction that is critical in 1 John. <clears throat> what does brother mean in 1 John? Is he specifically talking about Eli, Luke, and Adam, who are my brothers? No. He's talking about me and Timothy and Jacob. James, Jim, Richard. I'm not going to name all of you. We're not even, I mean, I wouldn't even say we're necessarily brothers from another mother, but we are brothers in Christ, right? That's what brother means. So let me ask you then, and I've already given you the answer, so this is completely fair, right? Can an unbeliever hate 
or love, either one, his brother? No. Because an unbeliever doesn't have one. Because a brother is a fellow believer in John and 1 John. Right? Am I off the reservation here? Because some of y'all think you're looking at me like I'm a wild Indian that just broke loose. I am a wild Indian. Like, really. I'm not very civilized. An unbeliever may hate a believer, and I will say this, an unbeliever may hate a believer with good reason because some are really crude and rude and mean. But an unbeliever cannot hate his brother. He can't. He can't love him either. He doesn't have one. A believer may fail to love a believer, but they're still brothers. In fact, in a couple of verses, that's the distinction he makes. He talks about Cain and Abel. Were they allegorical, spiritual? Were they brothers? Or were they real brothers? They were real brothers. You weren't so-called brothers. They were brothers. And that's the manner that John gives us as an example. He said, this is, this is how you fail to produce righteousness. You're the same person who does not love his brother. So that's an important distinction to keep in 1 John. John calls that person who fails to love his brother a child out of, a child of the devil. Now that makes people real squirmy. Does it make you squirmy? Every once in a while I like to make you all squirmy. That's part of my job. Does it make you squirmy that a believer could be a child of the devil in his temporal life, in the way he serves and obeys and sacrifices and where he places his passion and his service? I'll do you one better than just child of the devil. Peter gets called Satan himself. Right? Jesus was explaining to the apostles what he must suffer. And Peter stomped his foot and said, not on my watch, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's a believer. That's why he was mad at Jesus. Because he believed in Jesus so much that he couldn't fathom that other people would try to make him suffer and put him to death for the things that Peter believed about him. And yet standing in the way of Jesus' appointed pathway meant that Peter might as well have been and was serving Satan. He was identifying with him in that moment. It's not their identity but it's the household they're serving. It's the authority that they're obeying, the kingdom that they're serving, and the Father that they want to emulate in their life. It doesn't alter their destiny, but it does mean that their work will be destroyed. Now, again, people will be appalled that I have said that. Here's what's more appalling. Can I just explain what's, what's more appalling for a minute? 
And if you're not appalled by this, you don't understand it. A lot of people teach from this passage that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will not sin. That's how they understand it. Folks, do you know what they're saying? Every single one of y'all are going to hell. And you can never not go to hell because you can never be free from sin in this life. I'm going to hell. You're going to hell. And we might as well get the hell out of here because there's no hope. That is not what Scripture teaches. You should be appalled by that. That somebody would dare to impugn the character of God and the propitiation of Christ and the absolute ultimate sacrifice and price that he paid for you and for me and impugn it that way. It's horrific and horrible. But James 4.4 4 is another place. You know what devil means? It means enemy, adversary. James talks about this. In fact, it's kind of similar context. James 4, verse 4 says, Friendship with the world is enmity or hostility towards God. That if a believer is friends with the world, if you love the world and the things of the world that are passing away, John would say, then you're an enemy of God. Might as well be a devil yourself. You're an enemy of what God is doing in the world if you're a friend of the world. In fact, he literally says that the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Believers in this life who are, are incomplete, who haven't seen Jesus, and I know none of us have, who haven't become like him because we haven't seen him as he truly is. This is a fairly simple formula. We can be enemies of God in this life. When our love is misplaced, when our sacrifice and our obedience and our authority is misplaced, we can be enemies of God and children of the devil in that sense. We can produce things that are of the devil gratifying to him and sourced in him. But nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is not one of those sins that you can commit, as serious as they are, that can change your DNA in Jesus Christ. We could choose to be enemies of God in this life or we can choose to love our brothers and abide in Christ. And while abiding in Christ, we do not sin. We don't gratify the devil in those things. It's impossible. It means that as believers that are looking forward to seeing Christ as he truly is and becoming like him, without being legalistic, without imposing stupid, uh, inane rules, extra-biblical rules in life, it means that we dare not just meander through the days of our lives. That we, we make decisions and strategize purposely to be obedient to Christ in the way that we react and respond to our brothers and sisters in the Lord that we choose to love them, particularly 
particularly when they are unlovable or acting in an unlovable way. Folks, I kind of lean pretty heavy on this because I know I'm not the nicest guy. And when I'm kind of in an unlovable pattern there, I need y'all to love me too. I know you expect that from me, but that's bilateral, okay? There are days where I need that. We love them. Because if we do this, we serve Christ and are producing righteousness, abiding in Him rather than gratifying our enemy, the devil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the promises that are in it. For the privilege that we have in this life as your children, and such we are, to embrace your love and to abide in your Son, Jesus Christ, and to gratify him rather than the world and its lusts and the things in it and the devil himself. Thank you for that. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song.